Hi, everyone. Welcome to Evil Chat number six, I think this is. Uh, I'm a little bit confused as to which one this is because I have one in the bag with uh, a really great guest called Les Spellman. And him and I had a phenomenal chat, and I think we're going to have a couple of them. But we we're having technical issues with... Um, uh, getting the audio back and forth uh, to each other. And so uh, I had to put that, this is this podcast is already a day late, so I bumped one up that I've been working on, uh, which is about Dr. Bonnerchuk in the system and just talking a little bit uh, about that. And that's, so that's what this one's about. But uh, that one with Les Bellman is coming up. I'm going to get it up as soon as I can, and it is amazing. I was really happy with my discussion with him. It was a blast. He is, man, this guy is, yeah, he's he's really something else, man. And uh, Stu introduced me to him, and the first time him and I talked, it was like a two-hour discussion, and I should have recorded it, but I didn't. So then I asked him to, to be on this podcast, and I'm going to be on his. And yeah, so anyways, he's, he's something else. He's something, I'm not going to say too much more about him and, uh, other than he's a great guy. Uh, he's one of these guys that's juggling about 200 plates at once. And so, uh, you know, we're just trying to get it all sorted out to get him on the podcast as soon as we can. So, but it didn't work out this week. So I'm going to bump this one up. And this one's about Dr. B and the system. So uh, I think it's not so much talking about the system, although I do. It's really, I, I do that. It's really about what the system has to offer people who a want to do it and b uh you know maybe can't or don't aren't interested in doing bond or truck full-on but want to get an idea of what it has to offer in terms of uh your way of thinking and and how you manage your programs and in particular those are things around you know uh, change and variables and how you manage those and things like that okay uh, so I'm not going to say too much else. I'm going to get right into it. One thing I will say is that um, I talk at the beginning because I think it's important about how I met him and the whole story of bringing him to Canada and all of that. So if you've heard that before, just skip to uh, about 19 minutes into it. I think that's where the actual discussion on the system and what it has to offer coaches at just about any level begins. But really, you really do want to hear the story about how Dr. B got to Kamloops and how I met him in the manure sale and all of that, right? You do. I know you do, even if you've heard it before, because it's a great story. So there you go. All right. So hang on. Here we go. Okay. So how I met Bonnerchuk. Well, it all started with an email that I got in early 2002 via our club president. I was the head coach of the club in Kamloops. An email one day from our club president, and I used to get these types of things all the time, uh, from somebody that said, uh, I'm looking for a job for my father-in-law. Um, do, do you think you would have a job for him in, in Canada? Which is a pretty bold thing to do when you think about it. Uh, for pretty much anyone else other than who it was actually for. Uh, and he didn't mention the name, but he listed a list of athletes and achievements. And of course, me being a throws coach and having studied Bonnerchuk, I knew exactly who it was. And I thought the email initially 
was a joke. I thought it was a prank that a friend of mine, Glenn McAtee, Thoreau's coach extraordinary, taught me originally everything I knew about the hammer, uh, who at the time I believe was the, still at Clemson as the Thoreau's coach at Clemson University. I thought he was playing a joke on me, a prank. So I sent him an email and I, I forwarded it to him and I said, aha, very funny, very funny. And he replied and said, no, that wasn't me. So I thought, huh, okay. So I replied to the email. One thing led to another. I was talking to the sender of the email on the phone. And the sender was a guy named Igor Shibarev. And Igor Shibarev is Dr. Bonnerchuk's or Dr. B, Dr. B's son-in-law. He's married to uh, Natasha, uh, that's uh, Bonnerchuk, who is uh, Dr. B's daughter. Uh, Igor himself was an NHL hockey player. I think he played a couple years for the New Jersey Devils. He was retired. They were all living in Calgary at the time. Now, Dr. B had been working, living and working with his wife in Kuwait for the last decade. And he was, it was too hot for him. He was, he was tired of it and he wanted to be closer to his family. Uh, and he wanted to come to Canada. So, I get this email and they did a search online, Hammer Canada, and up came our club because Dylan Armstrong uh, at the time was, he was the world junior silver medalist in the Hammer and had, you know, I guess enough presence online that our club came up. And so they just took a shot in the dark. And so Igor and I talked, you know, talked a bit about the possibility of uh, bringing Dr. B over and I took it to our executive and, and our executive of the club had no interest in bringing him over. I was the only one that was interested in this. Um, you know, they were like, well, we already have a coach. Why, why do we want to do this? They, they had no clue who he was. Um, so we initially just said no to him and, and we really didn't have the money at the time. So we said no to him and we all sort of went our separate ways, but I said, you know, let's, let's stay in touch. And so what happened was at the same time or about five years before that, I had started a fundraiser for the club and it was a, uh, which, which was growing every year. It was a manure sale. And that may sound hilarious to you as it does everybody. When I tell them how we made money for that club, but um, then they stop laughing when I tell them that the last three years of the sale, we made over $50,000 each year in a weekend. So, and this was all started, this was all happening as throughout this period that Igor was and Bondarchuk was, uh, were talking with us. And so, uh, you know, once we first hit the $50,000, we went three years making over 50 grand. And once we, uh, the first year, which I think was 2003, I said, I said to, uh, I said to the club president, I said, well, why can't we do this? Like we're, we're a nonprofit. We're f trying to find ways to spend this money. I mean, I had so much equipment. It was crazy. Uh, you know, we just had to spend it cause you can't keep it in the bank as a nonprofit. So uh, one year we walked or the year before, actually, we walked into uh, a car dealership uh, with cash and bought a brand new E350 Ford, um, 15 passenger van. I mean, that was, you know, this is kind of situation we were in. So we thought, well, why, why, I mean, we can do whatever we want with the money. Let's spend it on, let's offer them something. So we put a package deal together. It was, it was a very, very modest income, very modest. 
um, less than what I was making there, which was very modest. And, and uh, we thought, you know, this is what we got. Take it or leave it. We'll throw in an apartment. I renovated my basement suite to make it nice. I booted the guy out that was in it. Um, asked him to leave politely. And uh, and he jumped at it, said, yeah. So next thing I know, Bonner Chuck's coming to Kamloops. And so uh, there were a few hiccups along the way. Uh, I went to see him after the 2000 three world champs i was on the team for canada it was in paris uh there was a hammer big hammer clinic it was the first time in 10 years that bonder had sort of poked his head out of kuwait and he was doing a big hammer clinic in in hungary so i went there to meet him for the first time sign a contract and but it wasn't it, it took about another year for him to actually get to kamloops because uh he he there's some health issues and he was coaching an athlete there that he wanted to see through the Olympics in 2004 and but anyways so um long and short of it is on ironically enough the manure sale day of 2005 is I think April 2nd or something like that I drove to the airport in Kamloops to pick up Dr. Bonnetruck and his son-in-law Igor uh, in the manure sale van, which was uh, one of the main vehicles we used to haul manure around. We had all the seats taken out and there was probably a, a half a ton of manure bags in there. And I think, I think Igor actually on the way back had to sit on the bags in the back and we gave Dr. B the front seat and I was driving. <laughs> Anyways, and I was covered in shit and uh, I had, you know, overalls on and, you know, anyways, you, you get the picture. Took him home, dropped him off, said, I can't, I, I can't, you know, hang around. Here's your apartment. I'll be back later tonight. So, you know, he's kind of looking, oh my God, what the hell have I gotten myself into here? And, and, and actually the next day we brought him up to the sales because everybody was excited to meet him. They've heard so much about him. They were excited to meet him and you should see the look on his face. It was hilarious. But anyways, but that night, and this is where it's actually... Uh, you know, connects to what I'm going to talk about today in the course is that him and I started to write a book because I came home that night at about 10 o'clock. I was exhausted. I went downstairs to check on him. I knocked on the door. The door flies open. He's like, daddy, daddy, come, come. We write book, book, you, me, write book. And I was like, oh God. I was like, okay, you know, but I'm excited, you know? And so, so, and he had written, uh, he had spent all night writing uh, in Russian four pages of text that he wanted to start with this book. And he had taken it and directly translated it onto another four pages in English using a Russian English dictionary. He didn't speak any English whatsoever. So you can imagine how, you know, to him, it was all make, it all made sense, of course, because he didn't know. And he, he just said, you put in computer, computer, you put... And, uh, you know, anyways, long story short is that led to a process of him and I writing a book of which we got, you know, the, the more important basic first six chapters done. Uh, it was methods, peculiarity of sport form, periodization, transfer, uh, a couple other ones. But it was this process of him doing this every night. And then the next morning between workouts, him and I would sit down for three hours and we would, I would write and I would you know, uh, try to make sense of this gobbledygook that he would write. And uh, one of the things that I think really kind of made it work, but also made it really difficult was the fact that you know, he thought he was 
and for good reason, thought he was had landed in Podunk, Canada, and I was just some young coach who knew nothing about theory methodologies, uh, sports science theory, or anything like that. But in fact, I mean, I wasn't any super expert, but I had actually done a lot of study and I've studied all of his stuff and all the other things. I mean, I was, you know, way ahead of the curve at that time. And so I could sense what he was trying to say in a lot of these, in a lot of this text. And I was saying to him, no, you, yeah, okay, Dr. B, I, I, I know what you want to, you're, you're trying to say, but this is the way you need to say it. And then of course, but he's thinking in his head, oh, this guy's an idiot, doesn't know what he's talking about. No, 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 no. And then that would lead to a 20 minute argument. And then in the end, he'd see that nine times out of 10, I was right. And you know, we move forward. That got very frustrating. So, but that book, eventually we got six chapters done before I left. I ended up leaving uh, Kamloops in early, uh, very early or very late, uh, uh, sorry, very early 2006, I think it was. I went up to, uh, at the beginning of that year, I moved up to Edmonton to work there. But so I had a good eight, 10 months with him where him and I wrote this book. And and it was all very, uh, you know, it, it's the you know, we each kind of got tired of doing it. He, uh, because it was such a long process, the book never got published. He went on to use other translators that he was sending his written work to, uh, to the Ukraine to get translated for very cheap. Those translations are all in those, those blue and green periodization books. I think there's four or five of them now. Um, they're very hard to read, but I, ended up learning this system because not only did I write all of the text or translate it all originally through this very, it was the, the, the fact it was so painstaking and he was right beside me, you know, I had to sort of actually figure it out. But even more importantly is if you look at that first periodization book, there, there are, there's 16 different original methods. There's more now, uh, but then there was 16. So there were two different types of graphics. There were the, the methods graphics, which you'll see there, like complex variation, uh, stage, all of that. And then there's a chapter on the peculiarities of sport form, which is the different three different athlete reactions to it. And I had to, he was very, very specific as to how he wanted those charts done. So he would draw them out at night and then the next day he would hand them to me and I would make a computer graphic of them. Now that's kind of relevant to the discussion here because with those charts, if you just look at those charts, you can actually reverse engineer the system to some degree. And it was in the course of trying, you know, trying to figure out how I was going to get those charts into Word and then, you know, writing all of this out, this text out that went with each one of these, that's how I started to figure out the system. But like I said, we got tired of doing it. It sat on my computer, never saw the light of day. And it wasn't really until I had moved to Britain, which is about four years later, I got there in the September of 2009 where I really went hardcore with the system because I started coaching Mark Dry and Sophie Hitchin and another discus thrower and a few other athletes. But those two were the two I really, you know, really experimented with it on. When I was at the CICC, I did it, we, you know, we use a lot of the principles in with, with our sprinters, but we weren't really doing it hardcore bond or chuck, you know. 
So when I started that, coaching those athletes, I pulled it out and I was looking at it and I was, I was going, holy cow, this actually makes a lot of sense relative to some of those periodization books that had come out and some of the other books that, you know, although a lot of them are well translated, you know, it's not just the, uh, the, the topics and the translations that make them difficult to read. It's, I've talked to some of the translators. It's a lot of it is Dr. B's writing style. It's just the way he thinks and it's, it can make it really difficult. But because we, this was such a simple process and two guys who couldn't communicate or could only communicate on a very basic level, the end product through just sheer white knuckling was actually something that you could actually understand. And I remember looking at it, I sent it to Martin Bingisser, who is one of the other experts on the Bonnercheck system. He trained with Dr. Bees from Seattle. He now lives in uh, Switzerland. Um, he runs HMMR Media, um, the, the, the training website. Um, I sent it to him and I said, hey, Martin, you got to check this out, man. Because I hadn't looked at it in eight years and he was like, wow, this actually makes sense, you know. Cause, so I used that um, and started experimenting with throwers. And then later on, uh, when I moved back to Canada, I was getting inundated with requests for from people that you know had heard that I'd worked with them and wanted to talk about it and it was getting to the point where it was just you know it was given too much away plus it was taking too much of my time so I started the course and you know uh, full disclosure I share everything with Dr. B everything I make off that course I split it with Dr. B um, and uh, yeah and so it's that's that's how it all came about so that's the story of how I got to know Dr. B. And the last thing that I'm going to say before I get into the more technical parts of this is this. The greatest coaches don't hide or stow away information and try to keep it from other coaches or other people. Um, that's a complete myth. In fact, to me, or at least in my experience, it's exact opposite. The greatest coaches, I'm talking the greatest ones that I've ever known, are the most forthcoming, the most generous with their ideas, uh, uh, you know, than anyone else, than any other coaches. And Bonnerchuk is no exception to that. And when he came to Kamloops, you know, if, if anything, I had to slow him down from, you know, trying to get all of it out of him uh, at once. And so I think that's important to to say here at, before we get into all this technical stuff. Um, you know, he's a, he's a kind, generous, uh, humble man, uh, you know, with, with his, you know, his own ego, like every other coach, no, no doubt about it. He's very proud of what he has accomplished and especially with his writings, um, you know, like anybody would be, but uh, he's a, uh, he's, He's, he's a special dude, and it's been one of the great pleasures of my, not just my coaching career, but my life to have stumbled upon him the way it happened and, uh, and having gotten to know him. He really is a special guy. Okay, now at this point in our discussion, I would like to welcome the 99% of people that are going to listen to this podcast who just skipped my long discussion, long story about how I met Dr. B. 
So, welcome. And now we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of it. All right. So, the first thing I want to talk a bit about is the advantages to this system. And like any system, there's pros and cons to it. Um, but to me, there's a lot of unique properties to this system. And that's pretty much what I'm going to discuss here today. Um, but I see three unique advantages and there's all kinds of other elements I'm going to talk about in a minute when I get on to principles, principles that are unique to the system. Um, but that's, I'm not really talking about principles here. I'm talking about, you know, why, what, what makes this a little bit different in terms of outcome. And they all, they all revolve around peaking. So the first one is, is that this system could be deadly accurate and it's peaking and it creates what Dr. B calls a true peak. That is, it's a, it's a peak that comes about as a result of adaptation to a consistent stimulus rather than a response to unloading or tapering. I talk a lot about this in the course and the advantage of this type of peaking is that it lasts longer and it can be maintained longer. Um, Dr. B says up to four months in some cases if it's done right. The second advantage is that the peaking in this system is highly individualized. And by that, I mean we are not manipulating the variables that one normally would in training to get an athlete to peak. We don't load them, load them, load them, then remove that load or taper off that load and get a bounce from it. The load is state is kept consistent um, and the athlete naturally adapts to it. And there's all kinds of ins and outs to that. But generally speaking, when you do that, you get a stronger, more uh, reliable peak that, that lasts longer, as I just said. And the third is, um, and this is a really important one, is that it can rapidly increase an athlete's rate of improvement. It, one thing you'll notice about this system is that, you know, however Dr. B in, you know, came up with it, and I'll talk a little bit about that too, um, it's a really out-of-the-box way of thinking. Like, he really challenges some of the standard norms around theory and methodology and, and program design, things that you would never think of. I mean, I mean, I was, you know, things I thought were ridiculous when I first tried to do it, granted. But if it's done right, um, then it, it really like, that's the, the first thing I notice is that you will get more peaks in a given time frame because we play a lot with density as the main periodization variable. You'll get a lot more peaks out of an athlete in a given time frame. And any high performance coach will tell you that when an, when an athlete peaks, there's something special about that time, about that phase that where they they really, you know, the adaptations that occur in that period are quite special. And so the idea, one of the central tenets of this system um, is that the more that you can put an athlete, uh, expose them to these peaks, these, these true peaks, the faster they grow. Because every time they have one, the idea is if you've done your transfer properly, that they get a little bit better. So if that's happening five times a year, as opposed to once a year, well, you're going to, you're going to improve five times faster. Now, uh, you know, there's a lot of ins and outs in, to that 
what I just said that I go over in the course. Um, but generally speaking, that's, you know, that's, that's the way it works. You can't peak five or six times a year for, for some sports It's just impossible, but you can get, uh, maybe an extra one a year or an extra two a year. Anyways. So the thing is though, in order to maximize these, these advantages, you have to stick to the rules. And that's because it's, it's, it's a true system in that its components are interrelated and interdependent. If, if it's done exactly as Dr. B intends it to be done, it works. And it's never really failed me as a coach, um, except when I've tried to do it long distance or the athlete hasn't you know, bought into it or there have been some kind of external factor that you know, interfered with the athlete's reaction. Like, for instance, when I did it with Mark Dry, a lot of the issues we, although it worked very well with him, he improved quite a bit with it not quite as much as Sophie and I couldn't quite get his peaking down quite as accurately but a lot of that was because of his lifestyle it was you know he wasn't a funded athlete couldn't uh um you know he couldn't just train he had to work and he played rugby to make it he he was a professional rugby player so he'd play rugby to make ends meet and he'd be hauling boxes he was a he was a delivery driver for a for a, for an office uh, supply company so he's hauling re you know boxes of paper up and downstairs all day you know so that you know that makes it a bit difficult but uh but you know you can work around it too you just don't you know you just have to accept that like you would with any other system so um and you know while all of this may sound like it's too structured to create uh an individualized approach that's some of the feedback that i get initially when people don't quite totally understand the system it's it's actually the opposite if you stay within the structure of the system it really frees you up to experiment and test things using using observations and measurables um as your guide we'll get into all that in a second the reason for this is because when you keep some of those things consistent, you reduce the amount of, and Stu and I talked a lot about this in I think our second or third uh, chat, uh, evil chat, was you know when you, when you reduce or control the components in a system, they're easier to manage. And that's one of the big, uh, big assets to this system. Now, having said that, <laughs> I say this all the time, you don't have to do bonder truck precisely in order to learn from it. Um, there's a lot of the principles that, um, that, you, can, that you can apply uh, to some degree in any sport and any situation. But the interesting thing about it is because it's so extreme in some of the uh, in some of the elements of it uh, in terms of how uh, the training stimulus is applied uh, that you wouldn't you wouldn't find these things out any other way. Okay, and that takes us into what I want to talk about next, which is the principles of the system. Now, before we get into it. I have to talk about the exercise classification system. So you may want to skip ahead here if you know it well, um, but you can't have this discussion without understanding it to some degree. And you got to be careful because uh, over the last few years, I've seen a lot of this uh, of this system or the classification scheme um, showing up 
uh, on the internet. And in some cases, it's just outright wrong. Um, and some people have a the way they've applied it or interpreted it for their sport is completely wrong. So I think it's important that I just whip through it real quick here. Okay. It'll be just super fast. So Bondarchuk's one of his greatest gifts in terms of this system is this exercise classification scheme. And it, you know, it, it's kind of the language with which we talk about, uh, organization training um, training organization and program design within the system and he came up with this all on his own it's you know it's just it's it's a very sort of little complete package on how you organize all of the content that you would give an athlete in training and it has four different levels to it and if you look at it in terms of a hierarchy at the top it's the most specific and at the bottom it's the most general and every time that I've worked with a, a federation or some kind of organization where they're trying to get a hold or a grip on their coach development process or coaching education process, and I show them this, they adopt it immediately because it makes so much sense. It, uh, you know, maybe to some people it might not explain everything, but as a general way to organize your training content, it's, it's quite brilliant. So it goes like this. At the very top, the most specific is what we call the competitive exercise. And that is exercises or activities that stimulate uh, the, the systems, the main physiological systems that are, um, that are responsible for performance in the activity or sport. And it mimics the movements. It is the movements, okay? So that's just a fancy way of saying that the competitive exercise is whatever sport it is you're doing. If you're a hockey player, it's playing hockey. If you're a shot putter, it's throwing the shot put, okay? In its entirety, in its form, okay? It looks like it and it acts like it. This next one down, and this is a really important one, they're called specific development exercises. And these are exercises or activities where the main sport or activity is broken down into component parts, okay? And what that means is you aren't doing the entire sport or activity in its entirety, but you're training components of it. So if it's, we'll use a shot again as an example, a standing throw would be a broken down component part. Um, if you were a soccer player, you know, sprinting would be an SDE exercise or sprinting with a sled. Um, uh, if, if you were a sprinter doing sprints with a sled, although that's kind of on the border, but one of the uh, important aspects to specific development exercises is that they are they can be greater in intensity than the competitive exercise itself. And by that, I mean, uh, you know, things can be overloaded. So we would use uh, special exercises, more intensive exercises in those, in those individual component parts that make up the competitive exercise. Uh, it's, you know, so in sprinting, it could be towing a sled, um, you know, in hammer throwing, it could be special types of, of release throws with a very, very heavy uh, weight. Uh, in baseball, it could be using, uh, you know, batting practice with a very heavy bat, that kind of thing. 
Okay, so that's the second one. So those first top two are really important because they both supply the criteria in that they look like the competitive exercise, although the second one's broken down, and they both stimulate the same systems. The next one down is called specific preparation exercises. Now, these are exercises that don't look like the competitive event. So they're not going to mimic it in terms of form, but they use the same major muscle groups. Okay. But they do stimulate the same body systems. Okay. That are responsible for making up whatever the, whatever the sport or event or competitive exercise is or are. Okay. Whatever the right English is for that. Anyways. Um, so typically in not exclusively, but typically in speed power sports, you're talking about weight room exercises here. Uh, same with, same with some endurance, uh, depending on how you load, uh, with endurance sports, it's, you know, it's major global abilities types of training in the weight room or with other, you know, by some other means that, are you know stimulating the 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 you know the extensor or flexor chains depending on what's dominant in your sport, um, and it's you know you're staying within an intensity range that is very transferable to your to your sport or competitive exercise. Okay, so in throwing the classic or you know the classic examples of these are are big global strength exercises, squats, lunges, Olympic lifts, uh, you know, presses if you're a shot putter or something like that, okay? And I mean, I could go on and on with examples because as you go down this list and get, and get more general, the range of exercises that are available to you grows until you get to the last one, which is general preparation exercises, which they don't mimic the competitive exercise in form and they don't stimulate the same system, okay? So these are largely used, at least with higher-end athletes, to, for, you know, just to maintain general athletic ability or recovery, um, you know, those kinds of things, okay? And so, you know, depending on what your CE is, that, that is how you determine what everything underneath it, how it's applied and what it looks like. Okay, so those are the four different classifications. So when you hear me say CE, I'll, I'll just use the, the abbreviations. I'll say CE, competitive exercise, or SDE, specific development exercise, or SPE. I'll try to be clear on my pronunciation, the specific preparation exercises, and GPE, general preparation exercises. Okay, all right. So back to principles. Without a doubt, the most important principle in this system, sort of the cornerstone of the whole thing, the thing that makes it all work, is the idea that we don't wave load volume and intensity, okay? Now, what does that mean? Well, I think a lot of people read that and they think they understand what it means, but it's a pretty absolute idea. So what it means is this, is that we don't change the, the loading uh, from day to day or week to week within um, the major cycle that we have, and we really only have one, it's called the PDSF, Period of Development of Sport Form, and that's akin to a, what you might 
call a macrocycle or a mesocycle, depending on what your definition of that is, because that does change in the literature. But it's a collection of microcycles, okay? But so the simplest way to explain it is this. If we had, let's say, one workout or one program or one session, and to me, they all mean the same thing. So a program is, uh, you know, the sheet of paper that the athlete gets that has one workout on it, let's say. And the, we are just going to keep rev turning that workout over. We're going to keep doing it. Now, it might be two or three programs, okay? But that's another discussion. But let's just say it's one. One program, they got, uh, you know, they got some, uh, some element of CE in it and some SDE and some SPE and GPE, okay? Whatever it is, whatever that content is. If you walk in on day one in the training facility and you watch what the athlete is doing in terms of what's, what are the exercises, what are the loads that they're using, what are the sets, reps, what's the break, what's all of, all of that, okay? All of those variables. And you come back like five weeks later, if that's how long it takes them to peak, is say it's uh, they're doing 10 of those a week and it takes them 50 sessions to peak, that would take five weeks. If you came back session 49 and 50, you would see the exact same thing to the repetition. The only difference is if you've done your job right is they're going to be performing better. So the weight's going to be moved faster, uh, whatever that is in the weight room. Uh, the throwing distances are going to be further and they'll be in peak condition. Okay. And it doesn't matter whether you have one workout or session or two or three or four, because however many you have, it the principle still applies. You just roll them all over in order. One, two, if you have three, it'll be one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, and you know one never changes, two never changes, three never changes. Okay, simple. This is a very difficult thing for people to get their heads around because we are so used to planning in a way that, you know, we change these variables, if not weekly, daily. And so, you know, with, you know, things like ladders and although you can do ladders within these, if it's within the individual workouts, but not, you know, you're not going to create a, a you know, a, a progression where a load, say in a squat, is going to get heavier uh, or the workload will increase from week to week. We choose a workload. Uh, we, we choose the programming by setting a workload. And that's a whole other discussion. I talk a lot about that in the course. That's ideal. What we think, if we've been working with the athlete for a while, we'll know what that workload is. We'll know approximately what they can tolerate. And we set it there and then we, and then that's it. And it stays the same. Okay. If it's a new athlete, then you, you may have to play with it a bit in the first few sessions. But once it, after that, once you get a feel that for something that's right and appropriate, then it stays the same. So the natural uh, response I get to that is like, what, really? Like nothing changes? Well, yeah, it doesn't. It really doesn't. And, and you, you know, if you want more content in your program, then you just add more programs to it. But the individual programs or workouts or sessions, they don't change. And you always do them in order, okay? Now, that freaks a lot of people out. Always does. And whenever... You know, I see people err when they're doing this. That's where they err, is they start to change things. And once you start to change things, it's not 
necessarily a bad thing. And there are methods in the system that where the there are changes within a PDSF, but there, there, there's a strategy behind it and it defines which method you use. So you might, you know, whether it's a stage method or a block method or a, or a complex method, okay? And I, it's, it's a big discussion and that's why I did the course. So it's all in there. But generally speaking, we don't just, we don't just change things from week to week or session to session. Simple as that. So you're probably saying to yourself, well, how, you know, what, how does that work then? Well, the way we stimulate adaptation is by changing the exercise or the exercise set. So once an athlete has reached peak condition and it could be, it, you know, the, the different methods have different setups. So if it's a stage method, you're going, you know, you're going to be doing GPE and SPE before doing SDE and CE the more specific forms of work, when they reach a peak in those exercises, then you're going to change those exercises or sets of exercises. Okay. And, uh, you know, in throwing heavy throwing, we primarily use the complex method where everything is done at the same time, but, but you can't do that with every single sport or every single situation. So that's why he has these, all these different methods. So you have to look at the methods and figure out which one is appropriate for your sport. In some cases, it's simply because you can't do the CE. If, like if you're a ski jumper and you're training for ski jumping and it's the summer, what are you going to do? So, you know, that kind of thing. So we use the change in exercise set to stimulate adaptation. And that allows us to keep within the very specific bandwidth that is specific to our event or our sport. So again, if you're a thrower, well, let's use something else. Let's say, okay, let's say you're a sprinter. Okay. And track and field is very easy. I use a lot. Obviously I, I try to use examples across all sports, but the problem with some sports is like MMA is that they're all over the board in terms of the requirements. And that in itself is an interesting discussion. But when I'm trying to keep things short, I'll use track and field because it's so absolute in its intensity. Everything is a hundred is a hundred percent when you're training or close to it. So when we're talking, like if we use sprints as, as an example, um, you know, if you're doing specific work in sprinting, for the most part, you know, you're between 90 and 100%. And in the system, we stay, it, by changing the exercise patterns or the exercise set, it allows us to constantly stay in that zone, okay? Uh, with throwing, it's the same thing. Throws are always, you know, they're not full, full out, but sometimes they're, you know, 90, 95%. Um, but all of our other activities, if we're doing STEs, it's, it's of a very high, uh, very high intensity. Okay. So it allows us to stay within that zone, but still stimulate adaptation because we're changing the nature of the, of the, of the patterning of it all the time. Okay. And we change it at very precise and specific times, i.e. when an athlete reaches peak condition in those exercise sets. 
Now, the third principle in this is that planning, that is the length of the training cycle. So I talked about the PDSF, period of development of sport form, which is a collection of microcycles. That can be anything from, you know, half a year to a year long to five weeks with a thrower. You know, it all depends on how often you can do the CE. And that's different for every sport. Even within throws, we can do the heavy throws eight to 10 times a week, but you can't do it in javelin because you'll, you'll destroy the javelin thrower. They can only do so much of it, okay? So you get the idea. Same with sprints, although I think with some experimentation, you can, get, you can really increase the density in sprints depending on what you're working on. Now, the length of the PDSF is not, especially initially, it's not something that is based on time. It's based upon uh, the number of exposures that an athlete has to the stimulus. So for simplicity's sake, let's say that we, again, we're going to use the thrower as an example, because often with throws, I can get away with using just one program, one workout. That's it. That's repeated eight to 10 times a week. Sounds a little nutty, but it works really, really well. So if I'm going to do that, it, and let's say it's a new athlete and we're, you know, this is the bonner trick system is not something you want to implement three months out from uh, when you have to peak, um, you know, you're in terms of like, you know, you, you're you not going to start it three months out go, from the world championships. It's something you need to start at the beginning of the year because it takes, you'll, you'll understand why in a minute, because it takes time to establish what these reactions are. But let's say you have a new athlete and you present that athlete with the workout, the one session, okay? And you're gonna do it 10 times a week, okay? And those are, it's a nice e, uh, even number to work with. So we present, the athlete's doing it, and they're doing it over, let's say they're doing it twice a day, five days a week, 10 times a week, and you just keep going, it goes over and over and over, and they, they keep coming out, and they're, you're recording each session. So in the throws, we are recording our specific measurables, which is the throwing distance. Okay. And we do that and it goes over and over and over and we were tracking it and you'll find that they will follow one of these three reactions to training. And that's going to get into our next principle. I'll get to that in a second. But when the athlete peaks is not really based on time. It's based upon the number of sessions. And Dr. B says it takes about, you know, um, uh, anywhere it's around 50 sessions and in my experience he's right it's usually somewhere between 40 and 50 sessions for an athlete to peak of those of that workout of that one stimulus okay if you have two programs or two stimulus or two sessions whatever you want to call it two different workouts then it's going to be 50 of each if that athlete takes 50 okay Back to our example. So we have one workout, the athlete's doing it. We don't really know when that's going to end, okay, when we first start working with the athlete. Let's say it's 40. Well, then it's going to be four weeks, right? But it really wasn't based on time. So then, you know, and at four weeks they peak and then we we change the exercises and we we do it again and we try to, you know, we try to, to pick exercises that are cre going to create another peak, uh, we may have a rest period in there. It's up to you if you do that or not. Um, I like to. Dr. B doesn't typically. I like to. A short one anyways. And 
But the thing is, is that we don't set it based upon time. So it's not like traditional periodization where we just pick a date, say September 1st, and I, we're going to peak by, or we have to have them peak by an indoor meet. Well, let's say the first indoor meet, which is January 15th. And then you take that time frame and you start to divvy it up and, you know, say, okay, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to increase volume here and then I'm going to increase intensity here. And we're going to have rest. We see, we don't do any of that. Okay. So we just present the stimulus, let the athlete peak. Once we have established that and we know it's because this, regardless of the change of exercise sets, this is repeatable. Like you will find an athlete will typically peak uh, in whatever X amount of sessions. So let's say in our example that the athlete uh, peaked in 40 sessions, that would be take them four weeks if we were doing it 10 times a week. If we were doing it eight times a week, it would take them five weeks. You see what I'm saying? All right. So that's how it's managed. Now, once we understand what that is and we know what that is, that number, and we've repeated it and it's reliable, then what we do is when we do want them to peak, when we have a date, say it's, you know, the first, it's a, it's a entry into the competitive phase or it's a championship or whatever, whatever it is we want them to peak, we look at that date and we just count back the number of sessions that, uh, that we need to do to reach the peak. If we know it's 40, then we, we count back. However, you know, we, we can fit 40 in, in whatever timeline and wherever that ends up, that's when we start. So if they're doing 10 a week, we're going to count back, uh, four weeks, and that's when they're going to start that new program. And it's, it's as simple as that, as opposed to the, uh, the reverse, which is, okay, well, we're going to, you know, break it all up into these sections based upon a calendar. Now, the last principle, quote unquote, and I'm not sure if I'd call it a principle as much as it's a very special component of this system and it relies on these first three that I talked about. And that is, uh, the specific reactions to training. And for anyone who knows anything about the Bonnerchuk system or has read something about it, it's, it's these three different reactions that athletes have when they, when they don't wave load volume and intensity, as I just described. Now, Bondarchuk discovered all of this through a bunch of studies that he did way back, I think it was in the early 80s, on loss of form. So what he was studying was what happens to athletes when they stop training and how fast do athletes lose form and all these different aspects of it. And when he was studying this, he noticed that when athletes lose form, they tend to do it in three different ways or more specifically three different rates or sort of three different rates that athletes lose form at. The first group of athletes lose form very quickly and they lose a lot. So once they stop training, they basically form plummets pretty quick, especially after two weeks after between the second and third week, they really drop off and they'll go down to as low as 90%. So think about that for a second. 
that means when they start training again, they basically got nowhere to go but up because 90% or 10% loss of form is quite a bit. So these are the athletes with the simplest profile, and that is they start at the lowest point, about 90% of form. And remember, this is after taking time off or a rest period, okay? So these are athletes that start at a low point, and they basically got nowhere to go but up, so it's just basically a straight climb up to, uh, to peak condition or sport form, and then they plateau, and it's at that point that you got to change everything, Okay. The next group of athletes don't lose form quite as fast or quite as much. And when they take a certain amount of time off, again, two weeks plus, um, then they, they, only, they drop to about somewhere between 92 and 95%. And when they start training again, what happens is they continue the drop. So they, they start training and they, they initially lose form a few percentage points. I, and I've never really measured all of this. I mean, I can show you all kinds of reaction charts from, you know, from athletes I've worked with where you see these patterns, but I've never really measured it. So and there's, no, there's no real need. But anyways, they initially drop form and then they climb up okay and it's not a straight climb of course it's a you know it's an up and down up and down but the general trend is to climb up to peak condition and then they plateau and again then you have to change things and the third group of athletes and they're kind of the more interesting ones those are athletes that don't lose a lot of form and no matter what they do. So they could take two to three weeks off and they're only going to lose about three to 5% of form. So they at most will drop down to about 90, you know, 95%. It's usually within 95 to 97%. If you look at the charts and the, the, uh, the percentages on the, on the left side there, you'll see that's where they start and they initially plateau. Okay. They initially, they don't, you know, they, they maintain form, then they drop, then they come up again to a peak. All right. And that's important. So those are the three different reactions. Now, which reaction your athlete is, is in some ways largely irrelevant unless you're a number three, because number ones and twos, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter because they're, you're, you're going to end up in the same place. It's just really how they got there and where they started from. But, but number threes have this unique characteristic in that they don't react well to change. So if you, now for me, it doesn't matter because as a throws coach, I'm always using the complex methodology or the complex method where, you know, we're always, we start with a group of exercises at the beginning of the PDSF and I don't change it at all. But there are other methods, like there's a variation method, which looks just like the complex, except you do change every two weeks. Why you'd use that, I, you know, I guess you would do it if you felt a need, you needed to change, but I would never do it because, and we'll get to this in a minute, um, you know, one of the big, uh, things that you learn when doing this system is that the more you change things, the longer it takes to reach peak condition. But we'll get to that in a sec. So these athletes, uh, these number three athletes, when you change things, they just maintain form. So you have to, if you have an athlete like that, you have to keep the loading 
consistent. You can't change things because they don't react well to it. The benefit to them is they don't lose form very easily. But the flip side of it is that they don't react well to change. So think about it for a second. If you've ever had an athlete that no matter what you you know say they weren't improving and what's the what's the normal natural reaction for a coach if they have an athlete that's not responding to training well you're going to change things when in reality that that may be the worst thing to do and you just haven't waited it out long enough okay so you know this is one of these things where you know you can learn you don't have to do exactly bonder chuck to sort of you know understand some of these principles and how it affects adaptation. And remember, when we're talking about those three reactions, we are assuming that they are beginning from uh, a state of rest where they've had time off, whether it was part of the plan or whether, you know, for whatever reason, injury or whatever, that's okay. That's different than if they've just finished in peak condition and they're starting a new program because those three reactions are going to be different. And that's a whole other just long discussion, which we, again, we talk about in the course. Now, those were principles as I see them. Um, the next thing I want to talk about are just some other things. You may call them principles or some observations, phenomena that you will, that will really jump out at you once you start to use this system. And the first one is change or an athlete's reaction to change. And this is the big one to me because until I started using this system, especially with the complex method, which you would use in throws and many, many, many other speed power events, um, I never fully appreciated the impact that change in exercise set or, or anything for that matter had on an athlete's uh, condition. Now, that may seem obvious to you, but when you practice uh, the application of training loads the way that we do in this system, where you're keeping it very extreme in terms of, you know, there's no change. So you're applying a, a stimulus over and over again, uh, and it's exactly the same every time, and you're measuring, as we can do in the heavy throws, we can measure every single day, so you're getting a real-time uh, indication or assessment of where the athlete's form is at every single day. When you're doing that, you realize very quickly that any small changes to that stimulus creates a change in the athlete's reaction. Now, the, that reaction might be really good, but the problem is, is that it's it makes it unpredictable. You're not really, you know, like you make this small change and it may be a really good change, but it, unless you're sure of it, it's not something you really want to rely upon, especially if you're coming into uh, a competition or you have a scheduled peak coming up. So that's one aspect of it. Another aspect, a more important one that Bondertruck is always trying to hammer home to people is that the more you change exercise sets 
or anything in the program, but in particular, if you look, if again, you can go back and look at the charts and kind of reverse engineer how this all works. But if you look at any of the uh, methods that have regular change, and when you see regular change on the charts, you'll see these little arrows. And he he always says it's two weeks, but it's really it could. He just says that because he's he's. Uh, you know, he's taught, he's, he's trying to present something that is going to apply across all sports, but that change may be whenever, but when you have a complete exercise set change at regular intervals. So again, for example, every two weeks or something, every time you change it, you are doubling the time to peak condition, which based on what I've said kind of makes complete sense because if you, um, you know, if it takes a, if let's say it takes an athlete 50 sessions to reach peak condition and at 25, you're changing the program. Well, they're going to have to adapt to that new program, which is going to take another 50 sessions, right? So it's going to, you know, double that time or extend that time to peak condition. Simple as that. So in this context, you really get an understanding or an appreciation for the power of change. And, you know, um, I'm not sure that in a lot of the programming and coaching practice that's going on out there that people fully appreciate. It. And I wouldn't expect them to unless you've practiced or experimented with something like this system that is so extreme in the way that it manages change and stimulates adaptation. Now, another thing that is really interesting or something that I learned uh, sort of forced me to think outside the box and experiment with is this whole idea of using density as the primary periodization tool. Because if we don't have volume and intensity to change within the PDSF or macrocycle, let's call it, collection of microcycles, then what are you going to use? Um, and this isn't something unique necessarily to Bonnerchuk. I mean, I remember Dan Paff talking about this using density as a tool way before I ever met Bonnerchuk. I remember him and I distinctly having a conversation about this in his office one of the first times. I went down to visit him uh, as a young coach down in Texas. But Bondarchuk kind of takes this to an extreme again. So, you know, and I guess the best way to describe it is just to sort of describe my experience with it. So as a throws coach, traditionally, before I started doing the system, I mean, you threw three to four times a week, maybe, maybe five if, you know, in some programs. Um but you certainly wouldn't throw 10 times a week. And then here comes Bonnerchuk, you know, arrives in Camelot and, you know, first thing is he changes the throwing schedule for the senior athletes. So they're training twice a day, five days a week. You know, of course, when you do that, you have to change the loading because you can't load them. You know, I mean, we were doing like maybe 40 or 50 throws a session three times a week before that. And, when you go to 10, you, you know, you're probably, you know, you're, you're not going to do any more than about 16 to 20, to be honest with you. So, um, but this whole idea of breaking things down more and having higher quality loads more often and compressing them, this compression of specific abilities is what I, the term I came up with a while back, um, 
to sort of describe this is really important because it enables you to do higher quality work more often. So instantly with the arrival of Bondarchuk, the throwing athletes in the program went from doing say 40 or 50 throws a session three times a week of which the last 30 throws or so were pretty pointless because they're getting tired and they weren't of great quality to doing, you know, um, say 20 throws a session, 10 times a week, 200 throws a week, of which every single throw was of a very high quality. So, you know, what do you think is better? Well, to me, obviously, the second one. You just have to get past the fact that you don't, you know, you don't need 48 hours to recover from those sessions because you're not doing such a, uh, a huge load in terms of volume, at least. They're very high quality and they're very explosive. And they're, but, you know, if you keep the volume low enough, then it's, uh, which allows you to have a higher intensity more often, then it works. And uh, lastly, in terms of the, you know, principles and some of the special unique properties about this system. I'll just say this, and Stu and I had a huge discussion about this in one of our podcasts, and that is that with this system, you, as I'm sure that you have figured out already, you know, there's fewer components, there's less variation. Uh, what changes all done uh, for the most part at once. So you have less to worry about in terms of control and management. And if you are in a sport or event uh, like throwing where you can, you know, have a very specific measurable uh, quite regularly, like we can do it every day, twice a day. There's very few sports that can do that, but every sport can have some kind of a measurable, especially if you have, uh, you know, a, a performance expert working with you that can, you know, has the tools to measure this, or even if you're just a coach and you have a good eye, um, you know, when you have those things, um, then it, it just makes things so much easier to manage and so much easier to make uh, or to establish correlations and cause and effect between different components in training, which, let's face it, is the goal that all of us have in terms of the process. So I just, uh, I've talked enough about that. I just want to end this with uh, a few comments about some of the myths around the system. So, and these are just sort of some random thoughts and or it's a random list of some of the myths that I've seen over the years that I've, you know, tried to, tried to dispel. Number one, this is not block periodization, okay? The Bondertruck system is anything well, I wouldn't say it's anything but block periodization because block method is one of his methods. It's not one that he uses with throwers usually or ever. There is a place for it. It's just that to him uh, and to myself, if you can use the complex method, then that's the one that you want to use because you get to peak conditions so much faster with it than any other method. But there are reasons why you would use the the block method okay but in terms of the strict definition of block periodization i.e what you know as for 
as Vershansky envisioned it, this is not block periodization. I can see why people see it that way. And Bondarchuk, because of his English and because he doesn't really read anything that a lot of people write about him, I understand why he never really refuted it, but it's not block periodization. Block is just one of the methods in his, in the 16 original methods that he described for implementing the system. And it's a whole, um, you know, it's a whole training strategy that Vershansky came up with. I'm not going to get into that, of course. Next, uh, you know, everyone must train 10 times a week uh, in order for this to work. Uh, well, that's ridiculous because I can tell you that you can, um, that, you know, you, you can't sprint 10 times a week. Uh, uh, although, you know, it might be interesting to try it with some very short distances as, as an experiment. I certainly think though, and again, this is one of the, you know, one of the messages I'm trying to get across here is that when you start to study this method and you look at it closely, then you start to realize, and I have a, a video in the course where I talk about this, you know, it's challenges some of the traditional ways of thinking. And one of them is in the sprints where, you know, you can only really sprint three times a week, you know, because you need that 48 hours between sessions. Well, I get that and I understand that and I don't I don't uh, dispute it so much but when you start to look at how you can play with microcycle setups um, you know I'm, I'm not saying that you're gonna go from doing it three times a week to eight or ten times a week but you might be able to get rather than six sessions every two weeks which is what you would get if you were running sprints three times a week maybe you can get seven and I go through this whole explanation of, you know, what that adds over a 10 year period. It's like two extra years of specific training. If you can add one extra specific session in every two weeks. So, you know, this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of message I'm trying to get across here. Now, the last one that I'll, uh, in terms of myths that I'll talk about, uh, at least in this podcast, would be, uh, uh, you can't use maximal strength in the system or we don't lift or, you know, blah, blah, blah. I've heard all, I've heard all of them. And these come from rumors of people talking to athletes and, and yes, Dr. B with a lot of his studies on transfer um, believes strongly that, uh, you know, there's not as much, I wouldn't say that there's no transfer because the numbers dispute that in a lot of cases, but he believes that there's not as much transfer as everyone thinks with a lot of the traditional types of lifting to the throws anyways, or and a lot of other events and athletics and other sports that then people traditionally think. And I would tend to agree with them for the most part. However, the way I look at it is a little bit different. I, I, I say, you know, look, we all understand that maximal strength is important. Um, you need a certain level of it, uh, regardless of your sport or event. And that's very unique to every sport and event. To me, the, the better question is not, do you need it or how much do you need? It's how you get there and what you do to get it and how that fits into your overall, um, training, uh, program or scheme or strategy. Of course, a world-class shot putter needs and has a high level of maximal strength. But the question is, is, you know, once you get it or once you have it, how much do you need to 
sacrifice after that in order to, to maintain or get those levels? And, and that's a question that is highly individual, or at least the answer is highly individual to every single athlete. So it's not, it's not really a black and white thing. And, and, you know, I just don't understand why everybody sort of sees it that way. But anyways, um, but yeah, I mean, and you know, if you were to watch at least my athletes, I tend to do uh, assign loads in terms of the SPE, the specific preparation exercises. I tend to assign higher levels in terms of where uh, where the loads come from on the force velocity curve. I tend to assign them a bit higher than Dr. B does for sure. And I've even gone into maximal strength with athletes that are, you know, uh, training quite often, but uh, generally speaking, I don't. I don't really go there. I don't feel the need to go there too much. And if I feel the need to go there, I will go there. Simple as that. Um, and then I find by doing that, they have the maximal strength levels that they need. But the idea that we don't lift or that maximal strength is uh, is absolutely antithetical to the to the program as a whole is it's, it's a joke. I mean, it, that's just not true. Um. Some of the common questions I get are things like, can I use this for sprints? Well, of course you can use it for sprints. You can use it for any event in track and field. You can use it for any sport. The difference is, is how you're going to set up your microcycles. Because if you are in a sport where you can't, uh, you know, do the specific work, the CE 10 times a week, then you're not going to be able to do it 10 times a week. Simple as that. And, and, you know, you're, but the point is, is that you look at what you're doing and try to find ways to create efficiencies, uh, in terms of using the density as a tool to be able to get an athlete into peak condition more often. Okay. Um, can I use this for endurance? Absolutely, you can use it for endurance. You're probably not going to use the complex me method necessarily, but that's just one method of 16 that Dr. B lays out in that first book on periodization. There's all kinds of stage and complex, uh, stage complex and stage variation and combination methods and all these. I mean, you know, so you just have to sort of find the one that's right for you. Um, can I use this in a team sport? Now that's a little bit trickier question to answer because in terms of using it for a team, quote unquote, well, that's going to be very difficult because it's highly individualized. And when people ask me that, I say to them, well, you know, you, you, if you understand the principles that you'll be able to apply those individually to athletes on the team and it really, um, for, you know, really, the when I get this question, it's usually from um, high-end S&C performance specialists that are working with athletes that are on a team, and they're responsible for the bottom three of those exercise classifications, right? They're not responsible for the CE, they, or at least they have no control over the competitive event, but they're responsible for everything below that. Well, you know, then you're going to apply the system to those three exercise classifications and do your best. And in fact, if you look closely at some of the methods, you can, you know, some of them will, um, you know, will apply to that situation better than others. And I talk a lot about that in the course. So, but yeah, it could use, it can be used pretty much any situation for any sport. So, 
All right, so that's my whole thing on the Bonner truck system. Just some ideas I thought I'd throw down because I, basically what I was doing there is answering a lot of questions and, and inquiries I get from people that are interested in taking the course and uh, have some, some of the, uh, you know, have bought into some of the myths or have some misconceptions about, you know, how it works and things like that. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed it. If you made it this far, uh, well, all good on you, okay? And I'll tell you what, if you are interested in taking the course, then since you made it all the way to the end here, use the code BONDERCHUCK with a capital B20. So that's capital B-O-N-D-A-R-C-H-U-K-2-0. Use that at checkout and you'll get 20% off taking the course. And that code will be valid until the end of February 2020. All right, so thanks for hanging in there, and I hope you all have a great day.